I just want you to know that since last week I upgraded. You upgraded my. Well, I upgraded what I'm going to do while you're talking. <laughs> oh, you got popcorn. Oh, man. I I got. <laughs> I went back and listened to last week's show. Um, because I just was working through Dante and I wanted to share some of it with my wife. And um, you know, we haven't talked at all this week, have we? No, it's been a crazy busy week. You've been writing stuff. I have been. Good stuff. Fun stuff. <laughs> we'll find out if it's good later. <clears throat> so. No, I'm writing. I was, I'm working on comedy again, and that's been a bit. So it's been fun. So back in the, uh, you know, writing gags and punchlines, and it's it's fun. Did you go full screen for me? Trying to figure out. So, and I mentioned this to you. I texted it to you, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it. Can uh, what does it look like? What is a Christian Christian? It's called transgressive comedy. Um, it's it's a particular kind of joke. Mo- it's hard to tell the difference in psychologically, experientially, phenomenologically, the difference between somebody saying something funny and saying something they're not allowed to say. So most people's response to a joke that crosses a boundary or to it to say, somebody saying something that crosses a boundary is to laugh. There are some people whose response is to get offended. That usually makes the people that laughed laugh a second time. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me work that out because there's kind of a rule in my house and I got this rule from Damon Wayans. Okay. So (laughs) he was good at this kind of comedy. Right. Exactly. Yes. He's, and I grew up on Damon Wayans, right? He was the Wayans brothers were, like central to the formation of my understanding of comedy as a kid. That says a lot about you. So it does. Um, but he says, you know, almost anything can go in my house. Almost anything. If it's funny, but it better be funny. Yeah. Right. Cause if it's not but funny, I, then we, we have we, a problem. We, there's a legend that is formed around one of my children about the number of times he got spankings for the punchline at the wrong moment because you don't get them at home but you do if you say it out where you're not supposed to say in latin class you still you get the spankings because you got to learn right that's there's something in the there are boundaries in the world that are solid in your real life and you got to learn where those are and and that's one of them where do you tell the joke where do you not tell the joke my kids were raised by a comedian and a comedy writer and so that was hard for some of them. One of them in particular to learn. He told a joke in Latin class that got him in trouble, got his spankings at the end of the school day. And I said, now, bud, was that worth it? And he was like, yes, it was. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, as long as you know, that happens next time. Like you got to like think that through. <laughs> and then, so it's become a legend around the house. Um, because the, I mean, the way that are, that kids form their moral sentiment, their gut level 
reaction to oh, right I'm and wrong. I'm talking about this because yeah, I want to talk. This is exactly what I want to talk about. Yeah, it's it's by what their parents do and don't laugh at, but it's by humor, right? Humor is a central part of the way we form our moral, our, our moral. The, I, I guess the the moral atmosphere that we react to, right? So our okay. gut level morality is mostly formed through that that humor, and that's and that's I think that's a God designed aspect of raising kids, right? What we do and don't laugh at, what we judge people for laughing at, you know, all those things. A lot of that ends up forming our moral core, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, core reaction, and but but as Christians, we don't ever think clearly, right? We don't ever try to say what is and what isn't the right kind, the right use of humor. I guess I don't know. I I haven't. I'm still forming this. Oh no, I think we have. It, but... I think we have. Oh, I think we have. This is what I wanted to get at. I, part of what you said earlier about <clears throat> um people laugh because you cross the line. Yeah, and I would actually say that's not excuse me, that's not where the laughter has come from. You cross the line in order to bring out a point that is humorous, right? And so the the point, or that is um, conflicting, or that is um, ironic, you know. I think that's the right use of that kind of comedy, right? There's a right because there's a wrong use. It's just crossing right. the line. It's just crossing. It's just the crossing line. the line, right? right? So, in like a raunchy comedy, there's a right use, or the genre, and this is this is just technical. This is writer stuff that mostly has to do with marketing. But the genre is called the R-rated comedy. Right? Okay. Now, not all R-rated comedies end up R-rated, um, but I know I I know folks that have worked on those comedies that have gone back and re-edited it to get an R rating for marketing purposes. Okay. They wrote it. They filmed it. They the first edit came back as a PG thirteen, and they were like, "We could have swore that was going to be R. Let's re-edit it. We need that R rating for marketing purposes." Um, but that some sometimes they they call it R rated, and the R's people realize actually stands for raunchy, right? Raunchy comedy. Well, um, there is a way to do that. To use that kind of comedy, that transgressive joke system, that just it makes people laugh, but it's not. There's no point to it. It's just get it. He did or, the thing. He said. The or thing you made me uncomfortable. You, you made, made me, me uncomfortable, in. right? And, so and that I feeling of discomfort that it ends in laughter. So, but that's not real you know, humor, though. Either that's not real humor. It's not humor in the in in a Christian worldview, but that's what I'm saying. Most people can't tell the difference. They phenomenally experientially can't tell the difference between laughing at discomfort and laughing because it's actually funny. Right. And so when it's used or true, yeah. Well, so, and that's actually the, in that kind of humor, what makes it funny is that it's true. Right. 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 So this, this is, this was, this is the Chris rock, early Chappelle stuff Uh uh, that, uh, that, what made that funny was that it was true. Um, but that, and then, um, you know, a lot of the gags and something like there's something about Mary that there's no true point to a lot of those gags. 
right? And it's okay to have a gag that's just funny if the overall point of the story is true, right? Because it's an entry point, it's a door, it's a, it's a door that says, come in here, let's be human together, right? Let's, yeah. you know, the, the joking around. <laughs> I, and I not all know. comedy is transgressive because there's all kinds of other, other aspects of comedy that aren't transgressive comedy that <laughs> don't work this way. But can, what does it look like for Christians to, di- to dig in and use this? So this is, and I think this is like what we talked about with Dante last week. There's something funny about Virgil hearing Dante's whole speech about who am I? And he's just like, you're a coward. That's who you are, right? Like there's a, there's, there's something funny about his response that is just like he just, it's just the truth, five fingered throat punch of truth that you laugh at because it was funny. So, um, but it's true. You, so while you're, while you're here, we, when, when it's called the divine comedy, this don't seem like a comedy. So when, when we talk about the word comedy and how they're using the word comedy, how are they using that word and what do they mean by comedy? So there's two senses in which it's a comedy, right? So there is, so when we say comedy, we mean funny, but the, there's a literary comedy genre that has to do with um, basically the overturning of fortune. So somebody that starts at the bottom and ends at the top, that kind of story is a comedy story, right? And really? a tragedy is somebody that starts at the top and ends at the bottom. Now that's, that's the old Greek comedy tragedy masks, right? That, that definition is Aristotle. But then, um, there's a whole layer added by basically Jesus comes in and he busts those categories. He's poured into, because is Jesus' story a comedy or a tragedy? Well, you can't. Tragic comedy? It, yeah, so, so there's new genres basically added because Jesus is poured into the wineskin of the old comedy tragedy distinction and he bursts it. And you get, you get comedy, you get tragedy, but then you get tragic comedy. Um, where, so a comedy is when somebody they set out to get something and they get what they set out to get in the end. A tragic comedy is when they set out to get something, but it turns out to be not the right thing for them. And so they get the thing that's good for them rather than the thing that they wanted. So it's a tragedy in the traditional sense. They didn't get what they wanted, but they got something that they should have wanted in the first place. So it's a, it's a comedy, right? So it's a, they call it a tragic comedy. Um, and the then the fortune. It's a turn of fortune in the right direction, but it was the but it was not the turn of fortune that they thought that was explicitly them. stated that they wanted, right? So, um, so the uh, and there's you know there's some good examples like Liar Liar I think would be a really good example of that, uh, the Jim Carrey movie. He yeah, sets I out know. saying this is what I think this is what I need, and he doesn't get any of the things that he thinks he needs. But if he would have gotten them, it would have been there were would have been tragic cons or he there were tragic consequences to the things he thought he should he wanted. He instead got something better, right? So you get a tragic comedy, um, and then. But so uh, that that, that wasn't a comedy because it was funny because he was hilarious in Liar Liar. Right, it's that that literary structure of the protagonist, the main character, getting the thing that he wants. So. Jason, then a lot of the things that we see right now in film, really the traditional literary form of comedy is probably more inside of a drama. 
Well, you can get it in a comedy or a drama because it has to do with the shape of the arc of the main character. So, um, when a main, when the, what the main character sets out on a, on a quest for something in particular, if he gets it, it's a comedy. If he doesn't get it, it's a tragedy. But, but as, as it's gone on, and Shakespeare did a lot to mess with the categories. Um, although they, the mid, the medieval writers were the ones that really showed the categories are not complex enough for the, a, a Christian understanding of story. Um, because there's, there's something like the, the dark comedy where a person sets out to get something and they get it and it destroys them. Mm. Right. So they, uh, they the thing that they want is bad for them and they get it and then it destroys them. So we would say it was a tragic story, but a comedic plot. I mean, in the literary sense, we don't but, use comedy like that at all anymore. No. So because for us, comedy has to do with just laughter. Did we laugh or not? Well, yeah, actually, comedy has to do with probably more enlightened. It's more enlightened idea, whereas our how we act on the comedy versus how we act towards the comedy versus how the comedy in the literary sense acts on us, maybe. Right. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's a good way to put it is we don't we no longer look at. We we don't look at the story and analyze it. We look at the at our response to it and then we give it a genre based on our response. Mm. Right. Mm. So. Um, it's a, it's, and, and the response of people is not, it's not that that's not a, not a real thing. It's just, you're not really talking about the story as if there is an objective reality that it's communicating to us. Right. It's how you interpret that thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think I haven't gotten a chance. I, I only watched the first few minutes, um, of the new rings of power, but I have been reading people's responses. And what's so interesting is there are people there. There's a number of different kinds of responses, right? There's the Tolkien purists who look at it and say, Tolkien wouldn't have ever been okay with any of this. Therefore I'm not okay with it. Right. Totally legitimate criticism. I mean, I haven't watched it, so I don't know if it's a legitimate criticism of this, but it's a legitimate way to criticize, right? You have the people that say, well, here's my Christian worldview response to it. Um, the, uh, then the people that say, this is all just an attempt to shove more CRT down our throat. Um, you know, uh, this is, this is all a part of the revolution, um, and these people are to blame, right? So kind of a moral interpretation of the creators of the show. Uh, but we, and then you get people that are like, I don't know though. I kind of, I kind of enjoyed it. Right. <laughs> and everybody sort of shouts them down <laughs> as if that's not an important aspect of the story, right? Did you enjoy it or not? This right, is that, so funny. This is so funny that we're talking about this. I have this. Uh, I have this all. This is this is that and might I haven't be, watched it yet. I want, <clears throat> I'm planning on it. I'll probably watch it this weekend and try and get caught up. But because um, I'm really curious. I don't know if I would be a good person to work. I've seen it. Um, 
And I don't think I would be a good person to have the conversation of the first two that you named. I probably would be in the category of the last individual who is like, well, how did you feel about what you watch? I probably have an enlightenment perspective. Uh, uh, you know, I would probably because that's only an enlightenment perspective if you separate it from object objective categories as well. Right. right. So because that what happened in the enlightenment is the subjective and the objective are separated from one another. Ah, uh, not right? one over and the so, other, the marriage yeah, of the two. Right. And so rather than saying like, oh, there's multiple ways to look at this story. Um because let's say so um let, if you've got something like so like uh um Milton's Paradise Lost, right? The first time I read it, I didn't really enjoy it. And, but I know that that's a problem in me, right? That that's, that there was things I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. Right. It's so like I, abolition I say, of man. yeah, right. And I say, so, so no, that this is, I, this is objectively great and beautiful and wonderful. My inability to take in the glory of it is a problem in my perception. It was a problem within me. Um, now, what is crazy is to read the different people that have read it, and you get somebody um, who reads it and says, this is all, um, this is Milton trying to, M Milton actually makes Satan the hero in this, and the the heroism of Satan is actually supposed to show us something about what's wrong with our culture or what's wrong with monarchy or, you know, some, they, and they, they take an objective view of the story, but their objective morality is bad. And so their objective interpretation is wrong. Okay. Right? So, um, there's, so there's a whole bunch of things that we need to be trained in when it comes to story. But one of them is, recognizing our own subjective response and deciding was it was our response true good and to, was our response the right response to the truth goodness and beauty or lack of it right but then that means we have also have to have an objective understanding of truth goodness and beauty and an enough understanding of story to be able to then analyze that that's where most people fall apart is their objective understanding of story. Because most people say, yeah, there's an objective truth, an objective... I mean, people now even are saying a lot, well, yeah, and beauty is objective as well. Um, and then... But they don't understand how story works well enough. So what they end up doing is judging it based on what is not in it. This was good because it didn't have nudity. This was good because it didn't have... Uh, a, uh, cursing or you know, rather than it. And we end up because we don't have a understanding of how to analyze a story as an objective thing. We end up judging everything, judging it always based on what's not in it rather than or, it. or I've the circles that I've run in is like, well, it has such a good, good clear gospel presentation. You've probably seen online yeah. that people's oh, like, yeah. The high art right now is facing the giants to most Christians, right? In comparison, like that's high art. And it's yeah. because of their defining everything by what has a clear and present gospel presentation for someone to come to know right. Jesus. 
which is, by the way, they're saying something else, though, about art, not knowing it, which is that beauty, truth and goodness are not things that bring people to Jesus. Yeah, right. right. That's that it, also that and, and what's so hard is like that scene on the on the uh, football field in facing the Giants where he puts the other guy on his back and blindfolds him. Yeah. That's a brilliant scene. That's a brilliant scene. It's brilliant. so emotional. So it's like, so oh, good. yeah. So good. And um, that which gives me hope for the Kendrick brothers, right? Like they keep getting better and better. Like yeah, that scene, yeah. if you could, if you could do what they did in that scene, that takes skill with a whole bunch of people. If you could take that and then your next movie, get three, four of those scenes, right? You're moving in the right direction. That's awesome. I, I That's all, that's all I want from my Christian filmmaker friends is just get better every time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you're not going to be Steven Spielberg out the gate. Um, Steven Spielberg was Steven Spielberg out the gate. I just went and watched Jaws on the IMAX with uh, my 12 year old. And at the end I was like, what'd you think? He was like, that was really good, dad. It's like, what made it good? He said, it was so tense the entire time. I was like, that is exactly what makes it good, right? He that was so good at pulling a response out of you. Um, and then it's a gorgeous movie. The cinematography is beautiful. By the time you see the shark, you're dying. It doesn't even matter that it's looks a little cheesy. You're dying to see this thing. Um, it's so brilliant, right? Um, but w- you're not going to be Steven Spielberg out the gate. You just got to get better every time and then study it like a craft, right? That's the other thing that Christians don't do well is because we think we're making sermon illustrations. We don't feel like we need to study movies, but uh, you're not making sermon illustrations. You're telling stories. It's a whole, it's a whole nother thing. So it's different, different <clears throat> art form. And preaching is its own art form. The preacher right. should be working on. Here's um, – so I think everything you said is probably the reason why it's so hard for me to be able to read Dante because <clears throat> something that I don't do with art um, – and sometimes it just does it naturally to me. Like it just it, – it gets you. Um, I remember the first time that I saw Matrix, mm-hmm. I was I was raptured in the story. Yeah. I mean yeah. it was it was just – an amazing film, and I was like, "Whoa!" And I remember leaving the. Th- I went back and saw it two more times. It it it. Yeah, I saw it captured. twice in the theaters. Yeah, so, I, I saw yeah. it at least three times in the theaters. And when it came out, I want to see how they made it. The behind the scenes. It wasn't just the story; it was the film. Because the story was so good, <clears throat> it made me check out everything about it. I studied it as a filmmaker, and but um, it, reading going through Dante, um, it they. I think there is something that uh, – and, and Jason Baxter talks about this a little bit in his book. There is something that art requires you to do <clears throat> and give up and kind of set down that Christians are very, very hesitant to do. And I don't know how to say this very well, but I'm just going to say it like this and try and work through what I mean by it. Art requires you in one sense or another to put down one sense – and embrace another so that a lot of your 
academic, even theological argumentation, systematics and stuff like that, it almost suspends some of that so that you can get inside the story and feel what the author is trying to communicate himself, the, the, the multiple layers in which he's trying to communicate. And for me as a Christian, when I feel someone trying to do that to me, I immediately raise my guard. And because I'm in the field, I know when they're doing it. And I know, you mm-hmm. know, I, and I know when it's happening. And so I need, I immediately go up and be like, Oh, there's a demon around here. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like some of it, though, is probably partly just being raised in the charismatic church and coming out of it. You get suspicious of motion, sure. emotional manipulation. And- yeah, that's probably true. I think that's probably true. I do get various, and, and whenever I feel my emotions engage, to the point that I want to believe either in the world or the kind of thing that they're communicating, I I start analyzing why and what's going on yep. and why do I yeah. – and, and, and immediately – but maybe it's just me because I come from that environment. But I know that they're trying to get me somewhere, and I'm questioning. I'm looking down the field like, where are you trying to get me, right? Yeah. And Dante to me is immediately um, suspicious. Um, and, and for, and there's multiple things going on here. I don't understand poetry, so I don't have the faculties to read it. I I see things like purgatory and I'm like, eh, that's Catholic. Uh, uh, we're starting in hell. Things didn't start in hell, Dante, just so you know that, uh, you know, there was a perfect world creation in case you haven't seen that. Um, and then man fell. So there's all these things. And so when I start reading Dante, I become, First of all, not having the faculties to understand and read poetry. And then when I start reading it, uh, it doesn't hit in the way that I think it should because there's some things I'm not willing to suspend in order to let it do that. So, uh, like, for instance, I can go to – when I watch Iron Man, I was there for Iron Man. There there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't anything that I was – I, I come there and I'm vulnerable. Show me the film. Right. I'm willing to watch yeah. the whole thing. And after I get done, I'm like, yeah, that probably wasn't so good. Or, you know, um, Matrix 4, one of the things that killed it for me, there was some of it in, in yeah, Matrix 4, the one that killed it for me was how much of the secular worldview has already there uh, in the modern era, you know, and the wokeness and stuff that just ended inside of it. I'm like, oh, they just killing me. So I couldn't even suspend, you know, reality for a moment. But there wasn't, um, I don't know how – I don't even think I should come to art, come to film, come to music willing to just embrace that thing for itself first and then come back and analyze it because I don't know the damage it's going to do because I embrace what's there. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Because it's, there's a – because of what – how powerful art is – it's able to grip your passions and emotions without you actively thinking that it's doing that or it, it can it's almost like a spell it's 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 a it's a spell that re- releases certain grips and allows you to go with it for a moment and to be taken by it without you having a lock on your mind right you know what i mean and you're and so it, you you you're especially as a christian you're guarding your mind so that nothing raptures your emotions in any way that takes a guard from your mind. So this emotion versus mental engagement that I'm always feel like I'm fighting with art. He, 
I get what you're saying. The I it, I think that that the fear that the world is going to be really strong and overcome us um is unwarranted. I think that if let's say we watch um we watch some movie and we have a deep emotional reaction to it and then we think about it and we think dang that um that movie actually was full of lies right we then at that point if we stop and say what is it then why did it resonate with me where are the places where i haven't actually straightened out the tuning fork of my soul or mm. my my the tuning fork of my soul hasn't been straightened out because I'm a I'm a I'm a monergist right <laughs> hasn't been straightened out um by the spirit and, and the habits the habits of my uh emotional response haven't been reformed properly to where I I didn't see it at the moment. Um that's actually one of the ways that we grow. So if we resist always if we if we resist letting the art speak to our humanity, there's a lot of things that we don't learn actually about ourselves. Um, so but this is the first few, just since we were talking about Milton already, the first couple of chapters dig in to Satan. I don't think anybody but Satan shows up. I mean, demons and Satan, they don't show up for, I think the first three books of, of the 12 books of the, of paradise lost. What, but the fact that as you read along, it's all these different demons making arguments um, for why they should go overthrow Eden. And what's amazing is the number of times that they say something and you think, I've, I've said that before. I've thought that before. Right. It's um, like screw tape letters you, where you dig in and you, and you hear the devil say something. and You're like, yeah, that makes a lot of wait a second. That's Satan talking. Right. Why is it that Satan is resonating in my mind? Oh, because I've got all of these satanic habits of thought that are invisible to me um, unless somebody puts up a mirror and art functions in that mirror way. Um, then there, there's other things, too, where. Um, the art will, will resonate the poetry, the story, you know, a beautiful painting resonates and, um, being able to stop and say, uh, doing that self-reflection that says, why is this resonating? Sometimes it's resonating for a good reason and you realize, you know, you, and you get to see the grace of God at work and you say, oh my gosh, look at this, this um, this beauty resonates within me. Um, and it's, if it's a real, I mean, that, that real beauty is always that invitation to look through it to Christ. What about, what about God, um, revealing Christ is shining through to me in this, in this beauty, in this beautiful story. Right? So there's, so submitting ourselves to, um, art, I think is an important part of being a human living in community. Uh, the, uh, but so uh, at the beginning of the institutes, 
you have you can't understand um John Calvin says you can't understand God without understanding yourself you can't understand yourself without understanding God and then he says and I don't know which knowledge precedes the other I don't know which knowledge comes first but there's a, a because that is true and we're surrounded by people made in the image of God there's also a communal aspect to our self knowledge we can't see ourselves directly we can only see ourselves in the eyes of our neighbor that's one of the things that art does for us right it draws us into the human conversation the human the 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 great conversation of history art is a major part of that great conversation and we have separated ourselves out from it i mean even the way we watch movies because we don't you know most of us don't watch anything that's not on the new release list we are not really a part of the great conversation of movies that have been going on forever. You know, I watched a Charlie Chaplin recently. I think it's the Yukon. It's hilarious, but you see the beginning of the way of that physical comedy on screen. Um, and you see how, how brilliant a guy, a guy with no voice, you know, no talking, um, how brilliantly funny he can be. And then you see, oh my gosh, this is, this is, this is the roots of Jim Carrey. This is the roots of, of, um, you know, young Will Ferrell when he used to be funny. And <laughs> well, and, and you got to remember too, this is why this art, particularly in film, is really important. It's only like 120 years old. It's not, right. it's not very old at all. You know, um, your great great grandma would have never been able to. What is this? How you know? It's yeah. Iron Man again, and they're like, "What happened? Where?" They think it's real because it wasn't right. even a category for some of that. So here's one of the things that I was as I was reading through Jason Baxter's guide to Dante. Um, he was he's telling you how to read Dante, and he has this line in here, and again, this just makes me so suspicious. Um. <laughs> about art and about Dante because Dante first of all I'm realizing that some of this conversation excommunicates a lot of people from from engaging with us because nobody's reading Dante anymore. Yeah. Like it's not he's not um Shakespeare is fading his way out that he's not so sad. Yeah. Uh Dante is a Beowulf. Uh, people wouldn't even know what yeah. here, people haven't even heard of Chaucer. I mean that, Cha- that's, Chaucer. that's surprising me. Yeah, we we didn't do some Chaucer next. Um but he he talks about if you're gonna come to Dante, he um I think it's on page six, he says, um he said it would be it would have been a great mistake to begin an introduction to the comedy by outlining the moral system that accounts for the architecture of Dante's imagination or his imaginative world. You know, and he and so which is exactly how I think Christians come to everything. Yeah. Right. Here goes the moral yep. system and structure of how this whole thing works. And then he says, beginning with an explanation of the system would erect a philosophical or theological scaffolding that could obscure the experience of the reading of the poetry. It's like, oh, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, it's, Dante's. Because most- then we'd read it the way we read the Bible. But. 
Okay, don't don't you go anywhere. Hold on. Indeed, Dante's most original achievement lies not so much in coming up with this hierarchical order of sins and virtues as as in his ability to give flesh to the system of thought to create a series of individual literary experiences to illustrate those thoughts. This insight should guide how we read the comedy. We have to begin by being moved by the sensible and this um, sensatious in Dante's poem and then proceed a discussion of the tradition of thought that like a skeleton informs it. Right. And, th- and this is, this is uh, the same thing I'm talking. Yeah. This is the same thing I'm talking about with art and okay. I just read that a couple weeks ago. So I probably am just stealing it because I probably read that and then thought about it. Um, and then made it my own and then walked away and pretended that I was my own original thought. Cause that's how I do everything. I forget where I read things. And, Me too. Um, but we, we, and art is a, well, the other book is the painted word by Tom Wolf that that's the other book that talks about this. So, but it, that it's basically, do we believe that art can communicate on its own terms? Or does it have to be translated into another language in order to really truly communicate, right? And we do this with the Bible all the time where we want to say, well, let me translate it into theological language because the story itself can't communicate. Let me tell you the, the theological or moral nugget of this psalm because the poem can't communicate, right? So our... Our exegetical theories all come from our Bible reading, and then we end up reading everything else the same way. So, um, but a poem communicates on a particular in in particular terms. A painting communicates in particular terms. Uh, a story communicates in particular terms. So, if you have a character at the beginning of a story, for example, that stands up and says um a lie right so i the i've i've got a character stand up in the my newest screenplay that that just says you know talking about this christian family with a bunch of kids and he's just says i can smell the sexual repression from here mm. right right that's the oh, that's and now because it's a story if you just took that and said oh this is what the writer believes you'd misunderstand you'd be misunderstanding how the art form works right the statement is the the question that now the story is going to navigate or na- the story is going to investigate is that true or not and the the way the story goes and ends is how you decide whether or not that statement is what the author believes or not <clears throat> Not just what a character believes, right? But that's how stories work. You're investigating truth claims, um, with, uh, claims of truth, claims of goodness, uh, claims of beauty, um, by working through those questions in different characters and hopefully in a bunch of different characters. So, it, uh, investigating it each in their own lives. Is this something that is true or not about this, right? Um, art communicates in, I mean, uh, painting communicates, it's a visual medium, uh, with 
in a moment of a moment of time, right? So uh, you you can know a little bit about what came before the moment, a little bit what is going to come after, but it's a snapshot of a particular moment in time, and knowing how to interpret the the story embedded in a snapshot, the motion embedded, knowing um, the way our eyes and assumptions um, add to what you see on um, is an important part. But before we even get there, most people don't believe that a snapshot can communicate truly through images without an interpretation that puts it into words. Most of the time we think, well, first we got to translate it into words before we know what this painting means. If we think it can mean anything at all. That's, but that's modernism or postmodern. I mean, modernism and postmodernism both separate out the, um, word, you know, logocentric communication from image centric communication and say images, um, images on their own don't communicate, right? You have to add words to it. And, um, that is, that's a modernist understanding. The postmoderns then said even words can't communicate. So <laughs> that also doesn't work. But that's just a Trinitarian error, Trinitarian heresy, right? Jesus was the word and uh, of God and the image of God. And he was true communication of the essence of the father, of the essence of who God is. He was the full, um, he was, the, he was the, he, he carried and communicated the full nature of who God is. So if you want to know what God is like, we're told, look at Jesus. Well, he's the word and he's the image of God, right? So, um, and that, so we tend to interact with art more as moderns than as Christians. Is because we're, we're pulling those things apart in ways that we shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, we, we don't let a painting speak on its own terms right which you have to do by standing in front of and submitting yourself to the painting that that right there as an art is form. The, that's that's the the thing submitting yourself to it as an art form is where i think we all freak out and that's where mm -hmm. uh, in order for me to be moved by dante this is something that cs i don't think it's just a christian thing by the way i think it's it's a human thing there's a couple there's two things that are working in my head right now jason one of them is um, the submission to the art form for it to work on you feels like you're giving up something textually, uh, theologically, or mentally, whatever, uh, in order to let that thing work. Um, you know, doing theater, one of the things that I learned in theater was you wanted to have control over the senses of a person to make them feel like that what they saw on stage was real. Yeah. Right. And so in order to do that, that, you go ahead. And as a Christian actor, that's the gift you're trying to give to the audience. Right. Yeah. Right. And so um, you had to take them from one place to another. You had to take them from planet Earth into this other environment in order to communicate something to them. Um, and so there, that's, you know, I'm just finding it hard for because. As I'm going through Dante and I'm trying to read Dante, I want to be moved by what Dante is saying, but I'm finding that there's parts of me that aren't. Yeah, so, uh, you know? there's, there's that uh, the unwilling. 
And, and some of this, okay. This is in my, this is my experience, right? Is that to get the, right? My, I, I think of my, my soul as a donkey, right? This is just. And I'm out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that the reason that a donkey works is because all of the legs work in unison, right? So if you watch a donkey run around, I, I wish I could think of it as like a horse or a unicorn or something, but I know that my soul's just an ass. It's, that's the, that. <laughs> you so, wrote that. That was a comedy line. Ta-da! It is. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a bit I've been working on, but, um, but the reason a donkey works is because the legs work in order. Um, but the, they, they work together, you know, it's all functioning. When I am going into, you know, when I'm trying to submit myself to art, one of the things that's tough is because I have all of the habits of thought of a modern, um, even though I'm trying really hard to take them each out and drown them in a, in the backyard pool, like kittens that I'm trying to figure out how do I do this? But the front half of the donkey and the back half of the donkey aren't working together. Right. So the, the leg, you got two legs trying to pull you one direction and the other two legs trying to pull you the other direction. And so you end up with distorted, you know, this distorted or this, this uncomfortable feeling, uh, whenever you go and get a chance to sit and look at art. I, I got a chance to go to the, um, oh, the, in, when I was in New York, the, the museum I wanted to go to was closed. So I ended up, oh, uh, the one that, that Frank Lloyd Wright designed the building. It's a big circular screw. Um, and most of the art was terrible because it's a postmodern art exhibit but in the back room they have um, a couple of monets a couple of picassos even one of the good picassos because some of the picassos aren't good but you i mean with a, with a picasso you can always tell he's talented but some of the picassos are not good but he's a great painter um but the, monet's uh a manet they had um you know uh just some beautiful beautiful art and um i want to go and just stand in front of it right but the crowds just keep pushing you along but here was what i found fascinating um next to there was it there was a, a monet and then a, a pissero and then this modern art right next to it that was like ziploc baggies full of colored water And what they, what you're supposed to do is step from one, then you step to the next, and then you step to the next, and you're supposed to have the same reaction to each one. Wow. This is amazing. Wow. But then I was with Marcus. We got to the baggies of water, and Marcus leans over, and he's like, that's what happens in uh, Arizona when you forget to take the ice out of your trunk. <laughs> Right? And I was like, yeah, what, what is this? What is going on? Right. And then the next thing was this old VHS video recording of a piece of wood bouncing around in the, in the, in the, in the waves 
um, of the ocean, of the Pacific Ocean, like, these are not all the same, right? Some of these are art that works, that, that believes in its own, um, ability to communicate on its own terms. Then there are things that, unless you read the description, you don't understand what is this doing in a museum. It looks like somebody, like a, a little kid left their lunch out and it went bad. Right. And then, and then you've got Picasso next. Right. And, um, <laughs> and you think, what, what's the difference between these? Well, you've got people that believe that art can communicate. And so you can step in front of their painting and you can submit yourself to it on its own terms. And then you've got these pieces, pieces of art that unless you go and read the description, you don't know what the heck is going on. Right. But, um, what they're trying to, or what, what they're communicating is we don't believe in art either. We know that you're going to have this particular response that the donkey is going to need a chiropractor, um, after you see any kind of art. And so we're just assuming that, um, there's no way you're going to understand any of this. So let me explain. Um, that's a postmodern view of uh, art. Can So let me, but isn't there, cause here's what I'm struggling with on the other side, Jason, I was listening to, I've been listening to the medieval mind of CS Lewis and then, um, and going between Dante and CS Lewis and abolition of man. Okay. Talking about a trifecta there. Yeah. And, um, one of the things that the author quotes, I think it's Jason Baxter, he quotes Aristotle on education. He said, the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. Right. And I can't remember uh, where this he, this came from. Said, um, the purpose and the, the way that education works is it's designed to give every object the degree of love that it's ordered to. I think it was Plato who was he was concerned. Right. And it made me think then, if that's the case, and that's the point of education, that's the point, then you have to have, in one sense or another, be brought up and framed to think about beauty in such a way that you give to it the proper love that you should. Mm-hmm. Or to know what beauty is, you even have to be educated about that before you ever get there. So part of the problem that I'm having that I think is having that a lot of Christians are having is they have an educational problem before they ever get to the art. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know what I mean? It's an, it's an ill-informed soul, but, but, okay. So pause real quick. And yet at the same time, the way that God has made the world is that your lack of education here doesn't stop what beauty does on the other side, even though you don't have the education to absorb it. Right. So, yeah, there's this weird yeah. conflict happening here. It, it, it is right, and and I think it's the so the modernist, more, the more what used to be called the scientific education. I don't know what it's being called now because it's I don't I don't know if you're even allowed to say that Mechani- stuff anymore. Mechanistic, Me- mechanistic education, you call it that. where you're trying you're your an education is supposed to prepare you to be the gear. Uh-huh. the best gear in the machine of society that you can become. Right. And that's something that I hear way more often on the, from conservatives than you do from the left. Right. 
because the left has, um, they, they are, they're, well, their individualism got, has more they, separate than together though. Like there's a, I there's think a form so. Of, there's a form of it, individualism but, that makes a, a unit. There's another form of individualism that makes individuals separate from the unit. It's weird. Yeah. I, they, they both ha- are struggling between the individual and the collective. Yep. Yep. Um, rather than the corporate, right. Mm. Rather than the covenantal. So mm. it's a different, um, what's, what's the difference? Well, so a, a, a collective, um, in a collective, the individualism, the individuality is always threatened, right? And so you, um, because a collective, so the right tends to organize their collective around economics and the left tends to organize their collective around government power, right? But they both have a collectivist mindset. Um, so one of them is concerned with the economy and the other is concerned with the government. Which, by the um, way, both of those are tied together right now, so I don't see them very much yeah. different. No, that's why you end that, that's in, but that, this is because the, the left has, has defined the terms of the conversation because the conservatives have lived in response for so long that there's no real conservatism left now you have the the left has said everything to the right of us is fascism but that's because fascism on the spectrum of leftist ideologies fascism is right-wing socialism right and so when you're that when you're in when you're all the way over as far as you can be to the left everything to the then and then you say oh fascism is right-wing it's right wing on the leftist side of things. Um, and the, what has happened and I've been, I've been saying, Hey, let's not do this for 15 years is saying it when it's, we're letting them define the conversation. We're living in response to them. What it would, we're, um, you're going to end up hearing people that are calling themselves conservatives, just embracing fascism by, and saying, well, I guess if I've, it makes the left mad. It makes the left mad when I do it. So I'm going to embrace it. You're calling me a racist. Well, maybe I am a racist. I guess that makes you mad. And that's, that's our, that's our, um, that's how we decide if somebody is on our side or not. Do they make the left mad? And so now we've got all of these kids growing up and they're saying, well, maybe I, maybe racism is, is part of the conservatism. You know, maybe, Fascism is what I'm after. You know, th- maybe that, maybe that's the truth. I've heard it enough times and I'm not a leftist because they're crazy. They can't even tell the difference between men and women. Um, and if I say that, then they call me a, uh, a fascist. Well, what's a fascist? Maybe I'm a fascist, right? Cause everything is lived in response to the terms, uh, that the media sets forward or the response to the terms that the left has set forward. And so they have thinned down the options to communism, socialism, or fascism, which are all the three. That's about as far left as you can get. But fascism is the furthest right of those three options. And, um, the, but, you know, the, the Nazis were the, they were the national socialist party, right? So fascism 
historically speaking, is just national socialism rather than international socialism. So, but all of them are, are pushing, um, the, the question that they're trying to ask is what is it that makes us a collective? What is the thing that holds us together? Fascism says the economy. And unfortunately, most of the Republican party has embraced that. Um, uh, Socialism says the uh, power of the government and communism says that it's those both of those things to 100 percent. So um, what you end up with is this weird collectivism that is the illusion of unity, uh, but requires a constant rivalry to keep up. Right. The, the the illusion of unity is developed by rivalry rather than by love, right? So a Christian corporate underst- understanding of the corporate life or the um, the the communal life used to be what it called, although that word kind of was destroyed um, by communism. Which, but right, this right. this is the reason that a lot of Christian romantics were very tempted by communism early on is because it was saying we can accomplish this thing that you guys want, a communal living, a living in which my life, um, it, I take into account your life in how I live my life, right? That you're, that, that I understand the connectedness that we have and your, what I, what I do with my life affects your life. And so I take that into account and purposefully organize my life in a way that benefits others. That communal understanding, corporate understanding, covenantal understanding, will, um, is something that um, can be held together when love is the motivation. It can't be held together so long as, well, the only other option is to create a constant rivalry, which is what Marx literally says we need a constant revolution, a constant rivalry. Animal Farm, I think, is the best version of what's wrong with this, right? Because I think a, a fantasy novel is probably the best way to combat this. But um, in Animal Farm, they've got this constant, everything keeps changing. But every time somebody says, well, wait a second, is that did that get changed? The response is, look out for Snowball. Look out for the <laughs> the bad pig. He's going to come in and ruin the farm. And he's working with the farmer. And you know, it's it's I mean, they basically predicted exactly how um, Joe Biden was going to treat Donald Trump. <laughs> it's really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Jason, I, 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 so that and that's the diff. So you kind of walk through the difference between kind of left, right and then covenantal. Um, yeah. So. And so a covenantal understanding of, of art or a, a um, you know, the understanding of our own humanity that that the scriptures teach that makes art possible is that there are, that um, we can, that communication is something that's assumed. And this is something that I, um, that often presuppositionalists misunderstand um, what's going on when you say you have to presume reality to be able to communicate. Um, that is true and people just do it. 
there are people in the fringes that stop doing it. But for the most part, everybody just assumes a reality in which I can communicate to you, you can communicate to me. Um, you know, I think emojis are a really good example of this, right? Um, you can just drop a, a series of emojis in and people understand what you mean. There's no words involved. I, <laughs> I recently was trying to say, Hey, y'all are number one to my kids. And I discovered that there's a middle finger emoji that I didn't know about. <laughs> that was funny. Um, but they, they thought it was hilarious because, you know, <laughs> their dad just emoji flipped them off a bunch. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, what, what I was trying to say was you're number one, but the fact that you can even miscommunicate like that means that the communication by images is real. Um, and and wow. uh that's good yep. so um we assume reality but then we we teach in art school that it doesn't really work and so we get bad art because we're we have artists that are saying it's important that i don't submit to reality i have to submit to this false reality in order to be considered an artiste um the, but, but it doesn't mean that artists don't still sit in the, in the driving seat of the bus. They do, right? That's still, uh, of the culture. Um, but now the art schools have all been, um, co-opted to an unreality. Is it, is by it an unreality? Well, and this is what I was trying to get at earlier. I know we got to run. Um, but what I was trying to get at earlier was I. This is an excuse. I'm not trying to be like Dante in Canto Two. I think it was or one, where he didn't have <laughs> yeah, courage. Canto Two. Uh, Canto Two. Um, I'm not trying to say, it, but I'm trying to make a real observation that. Um. The education that informs my ability. To be able to translate and understand the depths of art are have another teacher <laughs> than the reality that I live in and so whatever Dante has that I should be able to see clearly my education and I know I should I know I should be able to in, in, embrace this and see it my education has told me that I can see um, that I can only see modern art clear. So Pixar and their new stuff, man, I can see that so clear. The, the 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 problem that we have, I think, with the new stuff that's coming out that's super woke, is that we know their art is communicating something that is not true about the way that God made the world. So we can see those things in one way. And we're gonna like, oh man, that's so odd. Like, and we can see, it. but yeah. then when, but but then like with somebody like Dante, it's like, oh, he's not really theologically right here. Uh, he's not really <laughs> right. But, um, so because we've been trained as critics and not as humans, right? But and, and, and here's the other side of this too. And yet, I was trying to think about this. And yet, I know, I know, there's art out there. I know there's music out there. That when I hear it, it stirs my soul. Mm -hmm. I was sitting at a Christmas event 
and I think one of the choirs was singing and it's in you know it's not necessarily my style of music but this one song came on and I was like oh my goodness that was moving I, mean, right. I, I, I think it was in Latin and the singing and all of it was just be, it was really beautiful and I was taken back by it and I was like wow that's a that's that's beautiful um and it stirred my soul and so I didn't have to even understand the language that was being communicated to understand the beauty of what was happening right. in the moment. And so it, it moved me and I didn't have, and maybe because there wasn't any language, but I didn't, my theological child was like, since you can't understand it, you can't experience the beauty. Since you can't translate the words and know if she's saying yeah. love God or curse God, you, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't anything that clicked on to stop that from, stop me from experiencing the beauty of that moment. Right. And so, there's this one sense in where I'm like, again, I know that I don't have the education to be able to embrace some of the beauty, which is challenging. And then there's this other side where beauty just happens on you and you don't even have the chance to figure out if you're educated for it or not or trained for it or not. It just happens to you. Right. right? And those two worlds right now, are they're, they're really weird. It's a weird place to live in because you know that art should always rapture you like that. Um, and Jason, this is kind of where, you know, I was thinking, I was, again, I went back to our conversation. I listened to our conversation. You were talking about Dante. You asked, he asked for the poet to come, was the scribe or the poet to come to him. He asked for his memory to come to him. Right. And he asked for beauty to come to him. Right. Those three things. Yeah. The muse. Yeah. The, the, muse. the, the inspiration of the inspirer of poetry. Yeah. And so the muse, which was Virgil. Uh, and Virgil brought memory to him, and then Beatrice, of course, beauty, right? Yeah. And 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 Beatrice, Beatrice was the muse. Beatrice so, was the muse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we and we know we only so we only know that because of a dedication he writes later to one uh, of his books, right? So in the moment, you know, you say call on the muse. Um, the the muse is. Was a it it was sort of an a personification of artistic um, artistic inspiration, right? And that and I mean you talk to you you talk to writers to this day, and they'll talk about when you get into the into the production of something that you know is working, how it feels like somebody takes over. Yep. Right. Um, yep. And I know that you, feeling you editing. See, yeah, you know, I was going to say the exact same thing because editing is a storytelling where you're like, I get it. I can see it's and it's flowing through you. You know, I, and I, you're observing I had a, it as it happens. You're, you're, you're right. watching. You're like, this is happening. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I get that. I, I wrote it. There was a, a teen comedy script that I wrote a feature and I w sat down one day and wrote 40 pages without standing, without getting up. Right. It's unheard of. It was seven hours. You just, it's like my, you, you, I, I couldn't sit seven hours if I needed to before, you, you know, and so, um, if I, if I hit five pages in a day, normally I'm like, yes, right. 40 pages. And I, and there's no good way to explain that. Right. Well, so what the artists in the ancient world said is there's a, there's a there's a muse of inspiration there's they personified it they would call on it they you know we um there's a lot of great 
advice on how to regularly find the muse, things like that. But it's still, there's something mysterious about the production of the kind of art that, that hits people and changes them. And, um, it's, it, yeah, I don't have a good explanation, but. No, I, I, no, I've experienced that. So that's not even odd. Actually, people experience that a lot in the studio when they're working on music, artists. This mm-hmm. is just something that's normal. Um, yeah, I, th- that's, but here's the deal. So as I started listening to what we were talking about, you were going through Dante. We're not going to have time to go through. I want to go through, um, Canto three. Um, but as I was going through last week's episode, it hit me that without beauty men don't have courage Mm -hmm. and the last two years i keep thinking about like what was the breakdown in america the last two years it was so weird the everything with covid and the government and this it's just like this whole thing is like there's a massive moment where everything somebody flipped the switch and america came different and i saw the lack of courage run through man like I have never seen before in my life. It was lack of courage of losing things, losing jobs, losing other things, losing places in public, losing their company, whatever it was. And it's, it's not a, it's not an accident that the me too movement was the other side of the coin, right? Yeah. That's exactly where I'm going. When men lose beauty, courage is not going to be found. And in the thing that men are losing beauty in are women and children, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, when a woman now is no different than a man, and a man is no different from a woman in society as far as they're interchangeable, what beauty is is something that a man can just put on by himself and walk around. It's not – the I start seeing it with makeup years ago where they people would be on Instagram and you would see these guys transforms themselves into what we consider to be beauty in society uh, as a woman. And they will the picture side by side. You wouldn't know the difference between a woman and a man because what right. we would look at to be personified as beauty has just been mimicked by the other sex that doesn't carry that type of glory. Right. And. And so all of a sudden, what would bring men courage? Guys, I know guys who would, okay, they're not Christians, but they would go out to the club or want to hit on a girl. I know guys who were Christians who would go out in Atlanta, think that they were talking to a woman, and it wasn't a woman. Yeah. That'll mess you up. That'd be, that'd be terrifying. That'd be, that will mess, and it's not, and so there's this. This is why you marry young. This is why you know the parents <laughs> of the people. Right, yeah, so yeah, yeah, you say you was a boy when we were a kid. Doggone right. it, I know who you are. It ain't made Patrice. But the, so and here's a here's a good example. So I was newly newly married. My um second job. So when we first got married, I was teaching uh special ed. And but my second job, I got a job at a church and went and we had ended up in a weird conflict with the church and i had to stand up and basically say hey we can't do this you we're mixing um mixing the worship of god with the worship of of idols right because they had uh the church had um uh freemasonry sunday where the freemasons came in and did a 
and ran the service for us once a year. And I was like, I didn't know what Freemasonry was. I was new to it, looked into it. I was like, yeah, this isn't good. We, we can't do this. So, um, and ended up losing my job over it, right? Opposing it, losing my job. And I was newly married and I was like, man, I, I'm got to support this girl, you know, ended up delivering pizzas after that. But, uh, because I was like, literally, I don't have any other skills. Like, what can I do? And so I had to end up delivering pizzas, but the respect that I gained from my wife by standing strong, right. By just by being courageous. It was, I mean, I was, I was young and out of, out of my depth, I got a tick in my eye. I was so nervous all of the time. Um, I'd never, never really been through anything like that. Um, but, and the tick immediately went away the moment I got fired. It was so that shows you the kind of pressure that I felt as a young, 20 years old, newlywed. Um, but the, the respect of my wife from that, you know, it, after that, um, became, I think, the main motivator the rest of my life because I saw the how she responded to me being courageous. And I was like, I never want her to not think of me that way. I want her to think of me, to see the most beautiful thing in my life respond to, cur- to my courage with adoration it's like, that's all I want ever the rest of my life. <laughs> and that, I, I mean, it, it deeply motivates me to this day. I want my wife to respect me. I want my wife to uh, see me as courageous and safe, but safe, a safe person to stand behind, um, be protected by like all that. And, uh, that is not something a lot of men ever experience. So the thinking through that and and thinking about that, the more and more I'm concerned, I start thinking around our culture and I'm like, when's the last time that man really have saw something beautiful that stirred courage and, you know, stirred courage in them in in a, in a real way. And I was like, there's not, the way that we talk about and, and use women today are more like tools to get to something else, not for their mm-hmm. own. So this goes back to metaphysics. I was thinking about this, like, you know, we, so it, the beauty of metaphysics, oh, beauty of metaphysics, metaphysics of beauty. How does that work? Yeah. Um, <laughs> both. Be, yeah. Both ways. Yeah. Because there's a, there's something to understand, like the, the education to rightly treat things as they should. We have a breakdown. And I, I was watching a video where they were talking about all the crime that's going on in America, how people are treating each other, neighbors and stuff like that. And I'm thinking it's not because they're uneducated. It's because right. they're educated a particular type of way. And they are treating things that way based on how they consider them to be, how they consider their loves to them to be. So they're. They have no love for God. We're taught not to love God. They are God. They get to call and treat things how they see fit to treat those things. And so the way that they're engaging with each other. And so when you have those kind of people in politics and those kind of people in uh, medical leading positions, um, 
their loves aren't ordered in the type of way that they know how to treat something based on its proper use metaphysical breakdown but it but beauty is at the center of that so then we've never been taught how to see things and to identify and know what beauty is and yet this is the conflict that i'm having and yet i know beauty is acting on them because they live in a cosmos that's beautiful right and so they have to be educated in such a way to reject the cosmos even though they're being granted the beauty of that cosmos every day um who who's the the physicist that everybody's always enamored with right now um that i was uh the the he's an atheist and i can't think of his name right at the moment um he i was listening to him talk the other day and he Basically, Hawking. You know, no, uh, he's st- alive still. Oh, he's the he's he's not. Um, uh, man, why can't I think of his name? Uh, I don't know. He uh. he uh, uh, but he he has this strange way of interpreting everything that says basically um here's here is somebody will say something like he's he's really big on twitter which shows you that he's probably not a very good scientist honestly (laughs) um but he'll he'll talk about um well let me tell you what that really is though all the time so people say, oh, man, the stars, they're gorgeous. And he's like, well, you know, let me tell you, though, really what's going on. Uh, don't don't let it deceive you. Don't let the beauty deceive you. Are you talking you. about the black dude? Yeah. What What's his name? Oh, I got I him. I keep talking. I find I find I find it. Um, you forgot his blackness? Bruh. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't. That Bruh. doesn't. For me, it's the it, he's uh He's bad at philosophy. That's what I care about. <laughs> Neil, uh, Neil, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's a terrible philosopher because um, he has no – he doesn't know what he, he – he doesn't have any categories outside of a very thin um, set of set of tools, right? And so he's got this – thin set of tools and he um and uh so his but he's he's eloquent in the way that he speaks um he thinks before he talks and all of those things that are good in terms of his communication but he doesn't think deeply or well Um, and so he ends up saying really dumb stuff um but because everybody has shares his cosmological assumptions he says the things that and that feel right to people that the gut reaction feel right so he'll say um you know well what's you know, uh somebody'll say well wh- here's the colors and he'll say well actually your eyes work this way and so you're not you're really, not seeing, really seeing the colors you're um let me explain to you what's really happening 
and people are like, oh, I guess I'm not really seeing the colors. And you're like, dude, don't listen to that moron. He's, that's not true. You are really seeing the colors just because he doesn't understand how phenomenological, um, philosophical descriptions work. Um, and, uh, and he, he can't tell the difference between, um, his own, um, he's got this imaginative setup that he's describing to you, right? And you're taking that, his imaginative setup, which is a particular cosmology, um, that he's assuming that is, he's taking, he's describing his imaginative setup and you're replacing your real experience with his imaginative setup, right? So, um, it's like people that, you know, when you say, oh, the, the sky moved across the, or the sun moved across the sky and they're like, actually, let me tell you what's really going on. You're the, you're on a spinning planet and it's going around the sun. It's the sky is not, the, the sun doesn't move across the sky. We should just be like, you're stupid. That's not true. I just watched the sun move across the sky. You want me to place my imaginative experience or you want me to place your, uh, where you put your imaginative brain outside of the solar system and watch from that perspective. You want me to elevate that over my own experience. We should just say, no, I won't. Right. My experience of the world is a real experience and I don't need to imaginatively put myself outside the solar system and view it from that perspective and to have that be the only thing that really counts as a true description, that's just wrong. That's, that's bad. Uh, I mean, it's bad philosophy. It's bad cosmology. It's bad. Um, it's, it's a bad use of your imagination. I don't have to view the world from an objective perspective outside the cosmos for it to be considered real knowledge. Cause I'm not God. I get to just submit to the world as the art that God intended it to. I don't have to listen to, to Neil deGrasse Tyson's stupid actually in cor- corrections because I'm not trying to be God. He He's trying to be God. So, but we have spaceships and we have, orbs that go out into space so we can see exactly what's happening. And and I think you can look at the pictures that those things send back. And that's actually what he was talking about when he was trying to correct the color because the guy was like, man, it's so gorgeous. Look at those colors. And he was like, actually, those aren't the real colors because the way your eyes work, this and that. And he's like, this is just, I'm looking at it. That's the color. I'm looking at the colors right now. You can't trick me into thinking that these aren't the real colors i mean unless somebody messed with the photograph i'm looking at it so Um, then how how do you work through but but he's i think we just accept accept those for where they are and the limited perspective that those things send back as well and say oh that's cool look i can look at it from there because we've sent out a machine that sends me back pictures that's cool. But you're so you're you're actually doing something. You're doing an integrated universe type of thing. You're saying not only is it can I see that the sun is moving across the 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 sky, I can also understand that we are in a solar system that is moving and a planet that's spinning. Those two don't have to be necessarily they don't, right. They're in not necessarily. 
they're they're right. not in opposition at all. You don't have to say, um, you don't have to say I I I don't believe that the world is round to be able to say I'm standing in this place on it and here's my experience of this art from this spot of this art this created thing that God has put in front of me that is cosmomorphic, theomorphic, all of the different things. Um, and, and I can say, and here's my spot in it and I'm limited to this spot and I can rejoice in that. I don't have to pretend that I can see it from some sort of objective perspective to be able to enjoy it. Um, and, but we, I think what we do is we feel like I can't, that that somehow the enjoyment and the pleasure is lying to us mm. because that because that is the the modern cosmology it is a trick right beauty is a trick beauty is a lie That's and unfortunately what I'm to get it. Yeah. most christians have just swallowed that right and said yeah you're right you're right there's a deep dark ugly truth underneath all of it and every modern Christian picks a different thing as the deep, dark, ugly truth, but that there's some sort of deep, dark, ugly truth underneath it all. Uh, and, and honestly, that's the, that's the first thing that Dante says in the beginning of the third canto about hell. He says, Oh man, is this the deep, dark, ugly truth underneath it all? And Virgil says, just wait and see. Let's, let's walk through the story first. Let's walk through it all first, right? The, the existence of hell is the thing that the Dante character in, in Dante's Inferno in the third uh, canto, he, he wonders that. So it's not, it's not like moderns are the first people to wonder. Um, but the difference is Virgil's response, which is good advice, very wise is let the story play out. Don't, don't judge on this snapshot. Let the, let the story play out. Don't stop it in act one and judge it. Judge the story as a whole. And then they start walking into, um, they, then they approach the gates of hell, uh, from there. And then they walk down through the nine levels of hell, walk through purgatory, um, and then up to paradise. So what is, what is, Go ahead. Uh, so for I, for all the folks, I'm I'm currently reading this one. It's a new new reader's guide that just was just published. Um, Joe Carlson. Yeah. Joe Carlson is a Reformed Baptist pastor. Oh. So for all of the people that are like, how do I keep my evangelical Baptist and and Joe Carlson's like top notch scholar, right? Top notch scholar um wonderful guy uh he the he 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 basically says you let me help you keep all your evangelical bona fides intact in the Mm. introduction and say so you so you don't have to worry going in to dante and reading it um he doesn't pure flex it for us does he no no his his (laughs) trans i i just got his translation i haven't started it yet i'm probably gonna start it tonight um but what he does is basically say, um, he, most of what Dante is wrestling with are questions we don't ask anymore. And so mm. you, he's not giving the wrong answer 
to the questions that you have, most of the questions you have, he would answer the exact same way you do. Um, I mean, he puts the Pope in hell. Like he's, he's like a Protestant, he's like a proto-Protestant in that sense. Um, he's well, like, the Pope, oh, here's, <laughs> was, did, wasn't, didn't Rome team up to get him excommunicated? So it makes sense, yeah, right? He was not happy with the, <laughs> with the Pope, but it, he does it with a number of popes. But then there's other popes, you know, that he meets along the way that he says, these are great godly men, you know, popes from the past. Uh, so he, but he, he just says, let me, let me, um, show you that you don't need to be afraid that you can submit yourself to Dante as a trustworthy guide. And there are times that you're going to end up disagreeing with him and that's fine. But submitting to him as a trustworthy guide to your soul's journey before God is different than saying, I'm going to agree with this guy about everything. Yeah. All the time. I, yeah. That's, that's, that's a problem. But there is one of the things that I think Christians rightly understand is that you can't experience art without it acting on you. And right. so because it does act on you in ways that you're probably not even aware of, you really have to have your guards up about art, which we have because we do have our guards up about art. We just don't do it unless we have a certain amount of JP a minute per minute, which is Jesus. Per yeah, minute. right. Jesus per minute. Yeah. But here's the thing is that's actually a, not a very good guard. Right. But the the real guard is well in well ordered loves well ordered desires education huh? right is is having desires that are uh, ordered properly and well ordered and um because it, and that's something that art is one of the main ways that god does that to us because one of the things because the way that our desires are ordered is by is by tuning our soul to the beauty of reality and art, good art. That's what it does. I know we're rapping, but the thing that it makes me think about is it makes me think about signs and symbols and the sacraments, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. um, you know, you start looking at those signs and those symbols mean something. They actually have a meaning. They're a form. Would you consider them a form of art that God is using to tune us to the way the world is? Or how would you think about the sacraments in that way? Yeah, um, I they they are God instituted um, signs. Yeah, God instituted symbols. Uh, art. May I don't know if I'd call them art or not. I think art can be s symbolic and uh -huh. they are symbols or art is symbolic and the sacraments are symbols. And so the, the way that God uses the sacraments should inform our artistic imagination mm. deeply. Right. Um, but I don't know if I would call the sacraments themselves art, although art can flow from them and, and art is not a sacrament, right? Art and the sacraments have overlap in terms of how they work and exist, uh, work on us, you know, work within us. And, um, and so, and there, you know, there, there will be, uh, you, when you start studying Christian artistic theory, um, you run across people that will say, well, the world is sacramental. And I get what they're trying to say. 
I think they're wrong. I think that's the wrong way to think about it because I think the sacraments are sacramental and, um, the sacraments, but because they are different than the world, they can re lodge us into reality, right? Mm. The sacrament. So the sacraments will come get us and Ex- return us to give reality. Give me an example of that. Give me an example of that from the Lord's Supper. How's it return us to reality? So, so you, know, you sit there, um, you and you, uh, you have a great sermon about the love of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Right. And you right. sit there and you're like, man, I know that's true. I just don't, I, I doesn't feel that way. Right. And, and we would, I just had a really great conversation with my wife about this because we've been running into, um, particular roadblocks, right? Financial roadblocks with some of the businesses we're working on. And it's, it's, it can feel devastating in the moment. And you think, Lord, I've been, I put years into this. What's going on? I, you, you promised to, to provide. Did I do, did I make, did I mess up? Did I, is there some place I wasn't faithful? Right. And, and so, and having a wife that you can go to and say, Oh man, this is how I'm feeling. I don't know. And for her and to, for her to say, Okay, let's walk through the promises. Have you been faithful? Yeah, you've been faithful. I've been watching you. So we're not at the end of the story, right? Don't, so, so don't start despairing now, right? So you're feeling that way. You go into church, great sermon on the love of God revealed in Christ. You're like, okay, that's great. And look at me burning through my savings. Okay, Lord, what are we doing? Look at me. What's going on? Um, and then it comes to the point of the Lord's Supper. And you say, you think, oh man, this is the, this is that sermon now being put in my hands in bread and wine. I have to say, okay, no Lord, I believe that's true or I'm eating the bread without faith, right? That I'm chewing that promise. I'm swallowing that promise to me in particular. I'm drinking it and, um, you know, Taking the wine because here we go. I believe that I believe that that wine, that I believe that that promise is going to function the way this wine did. Right? It started out grapes had it. It went through the 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 crushing. It went through the fermentation, and you know now it's now it's landed in my cup right in front of me because this that promise has power like this cup has power, and it's to me. Right. And so you, you're returned to the reality of the way God, uh, of, of the way God, uh, has promised himself to be, has bound himself to you by the bread and the wine. Cause that, cause somebody, somebody can't eat and drink it for you. <laughs> you, you, you either trust and say, okay, no, no, I know that's true in spite of the way I feel dislodged from this promise throughout this week. I felt dislodged from this promise throughout the week um, of the love of God revealed in Christ. Uh, but the sacraments, it replants you into reality. No, this promise is true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether you know, it, let, let every man, uh, let every man be a liar. God is true. And that, mm-hmm. that promise is, is right there in your hands, you know, in your mouth. Um, the, you know, the promise that your sins are forgiven, you're feeling guilt and you're feeling shame and, and, um, and, w- uh, and then somebody puts the bread and the wine into your hands and you say, Oh, 
God doesn't feel the sin and the shame about me. God's mm-hmm. not ashamed to call me his child. To call, um, Jesus isn't ashamed to call me his little brother. Um, he, and how do I know that? Well, here I am. I'm chewing and swallowing that forgiveness of sin, that, um, that, uh, promise that my sins are taken away and that God is not ashamed of me. So it's, it's a relodging into reality, um, that is going on. All right. We're going to stop here next week. We're going to do Dante. I'll, I'll probably be through three or four. That's really good, man. That's, you know, the more I think about that, um, it's really helped me come to the Lord's table, um, waiting for and excited about um, the sermon that's preached, the word of God that's coming forth, the realities and the truths of that word, and then tasting that word um, in an intangible form that brings me back to reality, that brings, you know, the preaching of the word brings, transforms, renews your mind uh, to the reality of the new creation that's that Christ has brought. Um, and so right. that how are man to act in that new world and that new creation? And what is their engagement with other people in that new world and that new creation? And everybody needs to see the world after how it really has been remade in Christ. Right. Um, that, uh, and then so it, it just makes me think a lot differently about, um, why we should be having the Lord's Supper every, every week. Right. right? And the importance of it every week. Um, so, uh, so coming to Dante, uh, that pastor, he, I think he answered, you answered my question, that pastor is how to let your guards down in one sense. I don't want to let my, the, I don't want to be like, I'm going to take all my theology and just stuff it in the back and not. Right. Yeah. I don't want to do that. But there is a point where, um, I think you become a critic. To the point right. that you can't digest the art, you can't, yeah. you can't, you you don't allow certain connections to be made because you can't allow certain emotions or feelings to be stirred because you don't have certain theological places probably worked out to be able yeah. to manage or or you don't have the education for those kind of loves to be rightly ordered and so you need to work through oh this is a love that's not rightly ordered. Right. How how do I Lord help me work? And art helps you with that, right? Art helps you to to realize, oh, that's not beautiful, or that is beautiful, and I don't like it. Right. Well, that's <laughs> or, the sto- I mean, that's the stoicism that often comes with a Christian Gnosticism, right? That says whoa, what that you this so Christian Gnosticism tends to be more stoic. That says your emotions um, are suspect, beauty is suspect. And you've got to be unresponsive, right? That that um, that righteousness is unresponsive to beauty and emotions, right? So and that so that's stoicism, um, because it's all trying to trick you, right? And um, that's how I felt after leaving the charismatic world. I've just try, like just all of it, just like bye. Yeah, and it's just a swing. It's just a, an over a swing over past things you know because when you're in one ditch you feel like everybody on the roads in the other ditch right (laughs) uh so uh but but that's i mean and some of this is just this is just the normal process of of growing as you swing past something and then you discover oh there's a error there's actually an error on the other side too right you come back and um i don't think that's 
even necessarily an, um, an immoral thing. It's just part of how we learn and grow. Um, you know, uh, but, um, Christian stoicism is particularly a problem in the reformed world that says the intellect is what we can trust. Mm-hmm. And so we bring in, in everything through the intellect because we can't trust the emotions. Um, and that's a, that's just, usually that's our neutral, you know, that, um, but it, it means that it's, you know, we don't, we don't learn to read visually even a text that's trying to, that presents itself visually. And a lot of the scriptures present themselves visually and not didactically. Um, you know, there's a reason that we, we have no room for typology, very little room, very little room. Yeah. Typology. Very little room. And, um, and that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the art, um, of the, of the spirit is in the historical, in, you know, in the way he's directed the story of history, right? That's the, that's the art of the Holy Spirit that is supposed to be, um, when, when, when our soul is tuned to it, it, it reveals to us who God is, right? Cause not only is creation theomorphic, history is theomorphic, right? Is shaped the way, uh, shaped in such a way that it reveals God to us. Um, but we, we don't, we don't do story well. <laughs> That's good, man. All right. So for next week, we're going to spend some time in Kanto three. You're going to have to tell me, well, how do I, well, you know, what? I'll go through, um, the beginning guide to Dante's divine comedy. I just, I'll keep going through that because I'm just at the point where he works through Kanto three through six. It, I think it'd be it'd be good to get. I mean, I want to get Jason Baxter on. I think it'd be good to get Joe Carlson on, talk a little bit, um, about about some things. It was it was interesting, you know, working through this to hear him say, uh, like he he digs in on metaphysics actually, um, which was funny because I thought, look, we're not the only ones. <laughs> We're not the only ones seeing it. Um, the, uh, yeah. So he might be a really fun guy to talk to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally down. I'm just seeing, you know, the thing that I'm seeing, Jason, is <sighs> there's this weird conflict, but we don't know what beauty is. We have, mm-hmm. we have abandoned beauty. And the reason we know that we don't know what beauty is is because we're cowards. There isn't anything that will bring courage more than beauty. And if we don't have a concept and an idea for what beauty is, then I don't think – I think um, for me with COVID, it wasn't something beautiful that made me stand up and fight ultimately. If I'd be honest, it was probably something that was more that I saw that was negative coming. If we didn't fight, this is where we would be at. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I remember what, COVID, you know, go ahead. I mean, that's u- ugly. Ugly is supposed to motivate too, though. Right. Right. So beauty motivates, but ugly is, is also a des- designed to motivate. Right. We should be motivated. Not this. Ugly. Right. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is bad. Ugly is bad. 
beauty is good. But I wish that it was. But when when you're motivated against ugly, you don't ever build anything, though. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. That's when the only, only problem. When you're only motivated against ugly, right? Right. And that's what was beautiful was watching at least out here. What they did was sing, you know, the singing of psalms and the the praying and the public display of beautiful things was what made the the inf- that when it all happened, it's what made everybody say, "Wait a second, that's beautiful." That's good. We should all be attracted to that. How is that bad right now? You know, like how is how is something that's so beautiful so bad that they have to be shut down in that way? Right. And, and you know what I mean? And 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 so but it wasn't just like cuz everybody else's fight was, you know, there was a lot of people who were fighting it was like you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, but they didn't have anything that was beautiful to look at and say, "Oh, beautiful." Yeah, I remember that one pastor um he got a lot of play, but he was just complaining that they wouldn't let him go in and get his cups of coffee that he gets every morning at a donut shop. Um, and he, he got a ton of play and everybody was like, yeah, they shouldn't be able to tell you. You can't go in and get your cups of coffee. I was like, right. That's that, that is true. But is that really where we want to get angry? Right. Like this is the, the this was the final straw for you was that no, no you can't get your go in and get your two cups of coffee in the morning like of uh you, you don't have anything better than that to fight for and no. I think people appreciated no. that he stood up and fought what but it was a weird well, line line in the sand to draw. Well, that's, that's what I mean like um, people weren't fighting for beauty ultimately. There wasn't, they were fighting against ugly and, and encroachment, right? Like they weren't, I want the default of when something is negative, it's negative because it's like we were talking about, you can't come and violate my house because I have precious things there. Yes, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that is the that is the motivation for why I buy ammo and guns, right? That's the motivation for one to be strong, is to be able to defend those things that are beautiful and and valuable to me, versus, hey man, this is my property, get up off it. Like that's right. that's not right. enough. I mean that's that's enough in one sense, but it's not it's not the kind of fight that says. I'm shot four times and I'm still going to kill you. <laughs> right. Right. Cause it's not be- enough. Cause you've got something beautiful and fragile that you're protecting. Right. And you know, man, I'm, I, I don't know if it was communicated, but I've actually been struggling because I'm like, I don't, I don't know when the last time either art or anything has moved me in such a way where I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. I think there's a lot of things that are good that sounds dope and I like, but knowing what I know of what beauty is, like, um, I haven't, I haven't, those things are not normal experiences for me. You know what I mean? They're not normal experiences for me. Fox News plays off of this all the time. So Fox News puts up a lot of women with the blonde hair, with the blue eyes, trying to get you to see, oh, she's attractive, and they try to take that attraction and put it behind these ideas, right? And as if the and so now you're inspired by beauty to embrace this conservatism, right? 
but that's not that's the same way that people use women um to make men buy stuff right oh these cigars she likes a man that wears this kind of soap well okay but that's not that is a, a a fragile version or beginner's version of attraction that does not have the depth of beauty right you know what well, i mean this is what's so hard like when you're casting a movie or a tv show or something because there is a deeper beauty than just that surface beauty right um and right what usually happens is you, know, you get a lineup of actors and actresses and the handsomest actor and the most beautiful physically not physically because that's not even what it is but the most attractive immediate immediately stunning actor and actress are the ones that are chosen um but eventually as it as it goes the best at the art really does rise to the top in normal circumstances so because there's something there's a deeper charm to a to a fuller beauty fuller understanding of beauty than that act um casting directors rarely get that <laughs> but you know it's funny as you were talking i was thinking you know my mom helped me understand my friends and i i never got them but they they just never we never liked the same type of girls you know what i mean like we just yep. never did um my mom really helped me understand that uh i wanted to marry somebody like my mom which is why education again is really important but uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tony Verkenis, who used to be a co-host at Wretched, he, he said, um, you know, man, I would marry me some Condoleezza Rice. You know, and it's funny because it, to me it was like, well, that's weird. Like Condoleezza Rice isn't like an attractive person at all. Like she's not like, oh, but but there is a certain type of woman that she is that was that's beautiful. Right. Um and and I think that there's but we wouldn't this is where I'm conflicted, Jason. We wouldn't know beauty sometimes if it stuck us in the face. Right. And then yeah. yet all the time we're surrounded by beauty and we know it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's the weirdest we, conflict. Because well, it's, so we live in a, a our senses are numbed. Right. We live in a world that's numbing our senses to be, to real beauty all of the time. Um, and that, and so it's such a, a, this is the, the difficulty of a, of a world like this and the education, like the ones we received and the, um, I mean, I think you were, you, you were homeschooled, right? I can't remember. I've had it all. I've had, you've had a, the whole, the whole bad. mix. Yeah. yeah. But what the spirit does in our lives is he he pulls the you know he he pulls the scales off our eyes over and over and over right and um so and and I I like that uh image in the book of acts of the scales falling off of Paul's eyes because it's the dragon from the beginning that's what he wanted and so when your eyes are covered with dragon scales because of the dragon coming into the garden in the beginning um you what you need is to be de-dragoned right you need to be undragoned 
uh, and that's what happens throughout our life. You know, um, I mean, if, if you would have tried to explain to me the joy of, uh, of marriage 22 years in when I was one year in, I didn't have the categories. I didn't have the understand. I, you could, I wouldn't have understood what you were talking about because I didn't have the, the breadth of, I hadn't experienced the breadth of pleasures that come with it. And so the pleasures wouldn't have made sense. I feel like that trying to talk to people about art. Um, you know, I know. Like, you, yeah. Like, I'm, let's, I, yeah. Let's sit in front of a Rembrandt for a while or sit in front of a, um, <laughs> of a Pissarro for a while and like, Shh. right. I know exactly. But the depth of, but, but you could, but anybody can get there. I mean, it's just, it just, we don't have enough quietness of soul to reflect most of the time or to take in beauty, right? We move to my, I'm the, the thing that right now, and I don't understand how this even works is, is reels, reels on Facebook. I'll look down and be like, how many reels am and I, these things are like seven seconds long. What is going, what happened? How did I find, how did I get here? <laughs> two hours of reels. I just watched two hours of reels. Um, and I don't, and, and, but it's, it's, they're so, the inputs that are designed to distract are so significant that, um, it takes a real, you know, that, that it feeds the lack of quiet within this us. Is, this is what C.S. Um, Lewis hated about how the, you know, mm-hmm. like, he didn't why? even like to ride in cars. No. Cause he thought it, it ruins the experience of travel too much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm still working through that because what he's saying is that you're in the world is acting on you the way that they've designed this new world that it acts on you in such a way that doesn't tell the truth about the world that you live in. And I know he's right. I know he's right because here's the deal. When you garden, you could take all that microwave stuff and shove it up a window. Like yeah. it, 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 it's gone. Like when you garden, there ain't no, oh yes, we just got this in 15 minutes. Ain't none of that don't exist. Right. When you garden, I'm, you're putting fingers in dirt and mud and you're realizing that God has to do something supernatural in this right. thing for it to come out <laughs> successful. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, um, I've, pl- you know, I've tried to grow jalapenos the entire time I lived in California because they grow all around me. And I was like, I want my own jalapenos. I never could figure it out. I don't have a green thumb at all. I would grow these little tiny Barbie sized jalapenos all the time. <laughs> but, but I would still throw them into my salsa, like put my Barbie jalapenos I, I in my salsa. Uh, but the, uh, the, but there was, there's something about even trying that is, you, you realize, yeah, I'm, my, my soul is moves at 60 miles an hour because I grew up on a freeway, you know, that's just, and, uh, the process of learning. And I don't, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. If you can learn the discipline or if God teaches you the discipline of, of learning to stop and reflect. Right. Um, and for me, what did it was poetry. I mean, that, that was, it, 
I wouldn't have ever come to be able to sit and understand art if it weren't for poetry. I was raised by an artist. And so we did go to art installations and public unveilings of, of the, when the city installed art and things. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, and for, you know, I remember when we went down, um, to see the new art that was just installed and my mom and I were sitting there and we were looking at it as a big sculpture and her just saying, I've seen car wrecks with more artistic, <laughs> uh, uh, which say I've seen car wrecks with a better concept of, of, uh, art or a better concept of composition. <laughs> and I was like, Oh good. Cause I'm not understanding what it is that I'm looking at, but she just, she, and my mom just one sentence, just like, it bled out, you know, that piece of art bled out after my mom just gutted it. But, it, you know, and, and then, and, but then we walked and then, but, and, but, you know, we sat and we looked at it for a while before she made that comment. Um, and then we, we walked away and so, but, and, and my mom is literally, she's one of the kindest people I've ever met, but she knows art. She, she's a, she's really talented, gifted, uh, painter. Um, and, and, uh, so she knew what she was talking about and was not, didn't have any problem saying, oh yeah, that's bad. Um, but it wasn't because it was modern. It wasn't because it was, you know, it wasn't from the golden age. It wasn't any, it was just, this is a bad composition. And we'd go to other things that were modern art and she would could say, this is why this is good, right? Modern new art. This is why this is a good piece of art. That, and, um, so there was always, you were always judging according to a, a standard, you know, of the standards of art communication. But here's, 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 uh, and I have to run because I got to get to this other prep meeting. But part of what I've, um, come to realize is that the more that I understand art, the more that I understand cinematography composition and storytelling i'm putting all that in there with art the more that i come to understand that the more that i'm able to analyze politics and the culture in a way that communicates where we are going so art isn't just something that is communicating just that piece it communicates a trajectory as well and it resembles – and so this is why it's important to pay attention to even modern art that's bad because it's telling you what's going on in the society. When we go back and look at old art, we read old books, we see the dialogues that were going on then, we get a chance to experience what is going on in that society and culture. I'm making it a rule now that my kids have to know at least by the time they turn a certain age, I want them to know the 20 years before they got here. Right? That's my yeah. new rule. You got to know 20 years before you got here because I'm watching kids now that are was 2022. It's going to be 23 soon. They're kids that have no idea about 9-11. Yeah. Right. The world changed at that point. They have no idea how much they don't know what kind of world it was before. And so there isn't um, there isn't this links that connect them to the type of people that we have become and how we got here. And so without that anchor, I'm concerned that the art, they'll miss out on what's going on with the art, the art in Germany. There's a reason you should have seen it coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Architect, the art, the architecture, the, the architecture, it, yeah. the designs. 
And uh, and so no one is able to because we don't see art in, in the way that we should or that we're not even paying attention to it. We don't learn to understand. We don't communicate. We don't see which part of our theology that we need to be applying to the moment because the aesthetic has shaped itself around something that's bad. Yeah. And when we saw the education system 75 years start going and the art that started coming from that, we should have said, who's educating these idiots? Right. Yeah. Where's Well, I sent you that um, that picture of the bathroom of the Manhattan art. High yeah. School. yeah. Yeah. That art high school. The st- story's crazy, but that art high school is basically set the aesthetic for the world. Right. And yeah. and yeah. they just they grabbed um, all, they, they grabbed kids that were. Um, painting, you know, that were tagging stuff, and they said, "Oh, that guy's that kid's got a good concept of composition, just naturally. Look at that, and he's just spray painting on the side of a Brooklyn train. Let's throw him into this art high school, right? And um, and teach him how to monetize it, right? That was a big part of what they taught. How do you turn your art into money? Um." And, but then also, you know, realizing that we can, that, that, uh, you know, if we, if we run the, if we run the art student, or if we, if we control the art students of the next generation, the influential artists of the next generation, then, um, we have a massive, massive impact. And they're right. Like the guy that, like did the BET awards, uh, like the, the all went through there. Like you, you have a, um, huge huge influence out of that high school um and it was late 70s early 80s that they did that um same thing happened philadelphia art school in the mid 90s way outside of the normal amount of influence that you should have coming out of one high school um but it's that it's understanding uh the way the world works how influential the art is. I mean, the art and the history, the history teachers. So Karl Marx, I mean, he was a drunk. He was bad at math, terrible at economics. He was a bad philosopher. But one thing he said that was true was the person that controls the history teachers controls the future. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, I think we don't understand the way the world works, the way reality actually functions, mostly because of our eschatological errors in the church. But because of that, I think we have we've we've just guaranteed that we won't have influence. We should be we should be starting art high schools. We should be starting um, you know we we should be the ones that say let's fund the artists, let's fund the artists of the next generation, and um, then you know. We gotta learn to educate them now, first. We're, we're in the first yeah. day. We gotta learn to educate them first. We don't have the right education we, yeah. for it. That's true. That's true. I, I gotta God run. 